You know that old joke, why did the pedestrian cross the road? There's no punchline to it. It's not even an old joke. Why did the pedestrian cross the road? That can be frighteningly dangerous anymore. Talk of reducing speed limits, you know what? Yes. Yes. I'm with Ward 2 Counselor Sean Lewis. Stephen Turner was on the Craig Needle Show earlier today talking about photo radar. Reducing speed limits. I've never understood. Who do we call to ask who installed the 50 kilometer an hour speed limit in residential areas? You know how fast you're going in residential areas when you're going 50 kilometers an hour? It's hard to do. I remember yelling at somebody, and I actually did. I yelled at them because they were in a moving car, and it was summertime. This was back when the kids were young. And they were driving really fast. We lived on a street that got you to a Tim Hortons. So you had to take our street and then make a couple of other turns, and you were at a Tim Hortons. And people would fly down our street. Get me that caffeine. And with that, I thought, this is crazy. So I yelled at a car, and I remember the car screeched to a halt at the end of the street. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh. Who's going to get out now? Because I don't know if you've met me. I'm not big. Not big at all. Oh, five foot eight, 160. And that might be wearing pants. And actually, a woman got out. And she said, what is your problem? And I said, you are driving too fast. There are a lot of kids in this area. Who knows when one of them is going to run off the sidewalk into the street? She said, I was going the speed limit. I guarantee it. And you know what? She was actually right. She was doing 50. But when you looked at it on a fairly small street, it looked really, really fast. And when you ask, well, what can be done about that? A number of things can be done about that. You can look to have a speed bump installed, and we've seen that happen in in residential neighborhoods. If you look over behind Saunders, there have been speed limits in that neighborhood for a while. So there are things you can do about it, but we've just got to look at ourselves and say, you know what, it might be the speed limit to drive 50 kilometers an hour in residential areas, and hopefully that is lowered. Again, who set this up? Whose idea was this? Well, we can't have them driving 80. Huh. How about 70? Maybe. You know what? Why don't we just lower it a lot? Let's let's make it as low as we've ever considered making it. Let's make it 50 kilometers an hour. Because there is more proof, more and more, of drivers not paying any attention, not caring. It's about getting to that coffee. It's about getting to work. If you drive around during rush hour in the morning, how crazy is it to watch how people drive because they're all flying off the handle. They're they're late. They have to get to work. And that's how they're driving. And they yell at people and they honk at people. And all you have to do is stand still in London somewhere and listen. Maybe it takes a couple minutes. Well, you'll hear a honk. Now, that's way better than New York City or Chicago. Chicago's a scary place to cross the street because as soon as the light turns red, that's when all the taxis go. Red light, they all turn right. And you better be on the sidewalk because they're just going to go. They'll take off the edge of your shoe. They're very good at knowing where you are and where they are. And you take off the edge of your shoe, but they won't hit you. But it's still kind of startling. So I bring this up because a very good friend of mine decided to take a video and posted it on Twitter. 
And it was her this morning crossing the road, crossing the street, on a crosswalk at Richmond and Horton. And if you watch the video, picture this. So picture you are ready to cross any street. You can picture your favorite street, okay? And there's a crosswalk, well, kind of the the white lines or around Victoria Park, we have the rainbow lines. So you have those lines out in front of you, and the walk sign comes up. The little light that says, yeah, it's okay to go. The guy in the walk sign. And you start walking, and you can see this happen. The little man in the walk sign is not even flashing or anything. He's solid. He's there. It's time to walk. And three cars drive right in front of her. Now, if you look up the rule, and I'm not saying that we all need to stick by the rules. I know there are gray areas, and I know the traffic gets really clogged if you were to stick by this rule completely. But the rule is, if someone is in that crosswalk area, so crossing the street, you're not supposed to turn. You're not supposed to go. You have to wait until they are completely across. That's actually the law. Now, there's gray area around that, and you won't find too many pedestrians who get upset if you happen to turn in. But I thought, three cars? It is unbelievable to take a look at how people are driving. And then I grabbed an old, old study. This doesn't go back to the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. It's not going back that far. But what it did do was done by Berkeley, California, or done by University of California at Berkeley. And what it actually looked at, because someone had seen people driving through crosswalks, it actually was published in 2012. So we're looking at a seven-year-old study. But back then, there was obviously still the same problem, where you had people kind of blowing through crosswalks. So the researchers at the University of California at Berkeley decided what they were going to do was they were going to catalog the cars that were going through, just to see, just to see. And so what they did was they gave cars a one out of five value. So one out of five was kind of an old junky car. Five out of five was a brand new, pristine, rich person car. Okay? Name your favorite rich person car. That's what it was. Five out of five. And you know what they found? They looked at 274 cars, and they found that the more expensive the car, the more likely the individual was to jump their turn and go through the crosswalk when they weren't supposed to. Either with a pedestrian there, they had kind of some other setups as well with vehicles where you'd have to read and say, okay, it's my right away. 274 cars, the more expensive ones blew through. The less expensive ones never did, and it made them wonder about people. So as you're driving around going home tonight or coming in tomorrow, try to figure out which kind of person you are. Are you the person that if somebody turns in front of you, you're losing your mind? Because i got to get home. Are you the person that runs that yellow light right to the edge of red? Because you know what? you got to get home faster. You realize... When you do that, you maybe save yourself 10 seconds. You usually see the vehicles at another stoplight a little further ahead. We're lucky we don't have as many tragedies as we could. When you see the video of a very good friend of mine trying to cross 
Richmond, and Horton. And three vehicles go zoom, 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 right in front of her. The walk sign is on. Makes you wonder. We're going to talk speed limits. We're going to talk traffic stuff in about 25 minutes from right now. And we'll get your thoughts on this as well. If you want to weigh in on it, please do so by email right now, and then we'll open up the phones a little later on in the hour. 519-643-2222. That's 519-643-2222. Also coming up, giant beavers, because you can't go through a Thursday and pass up the opportunity to talk about giant beavers. How big are the beavers? Huge. Massive, banana-sized incisors. These things could get up to 220 pounds. 220? 220 pounds. Well, where are they? (laughs) How do I not book a vacation there? Don't worry. They haven't been around for 10,000 years, so we have nothing to worry about. But someone who has... On their resume, Western University, who's right now continuing their studies in the UK, has put together some research on these beavers and uh, has kind of shown that they're a pretty interesting creature. Not one we want to have come back. Don't go playing Jurassic Park and bringing this thing back. No, 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 no. But it's neat to know about it. We're going to do that. We're also going to talk about Apple Pay and how fintechs are getting involved in what banks used to do and kind of where that is headed. If, again, you want to email about traffic, pedestrian crossings, things like that, Mike at 980cfpl.ca. We do have time to go to the phones just for a minute. Michael, how do you feel about how we're driving these days? Well, the thing that and you said a few minutes ago is that uh, people are distracted, which is the case, like, almost every time when there's like uh, these stupid drivers is because they're not paying attention. So now you're suggesting that we legislate out stupidity. Like people can't drive properly. So now we got to make changes to our, our rules to accommodate stupid people that don't or, or can't follow the rules. Yeah. That's kind of, if you're that, reducing that the pisses, speed limit, you're hoping they follow it, I guess. Yeah. But that pisses me off. Like the speed limit is not that fast. If you're paying attention. And same with the crosswalks. And it's only crosswalks that have the white lines, like parallel and diagonal. Yes. Those are the only ones where you have to wait till they're out of it. It's not every intersection. Right. Okay. I should, and, I should have and, clarified that. Yes, you're right. And also, cars or pedestrians are not allowed to enter the intersection as soon as that hand starts to flash. Not when it goes solid and stays solid. When it starts to flash, they're not allowed to enter. So... You know, they're entering right up to the point of where it start, it goes solid, and then no cars have time to turn. Like, that's the reason why they have that, so that a car has time to turn before the hand goes or the, the walk sign goes. And the people have time to finish crossing the street. If you start crossing the street before it started flashing, you should have the amount of time it takes to cross the street. Exactly. So it's, it's not just the drivers that are at fault. There's pedestrians that are at fault, too. And people enter the intersection when there is no walk sign. Like when it's a solid red. Like I've seen it tons of times. I'm on the road a lot. And it's unbelievable how bad drivers are and how distracted they are. I honk all the time because the way I look at it is somebody's doing something wrong, like sitting at a, at a green light, looking at their phone and not going, I'm going to honk because if I don't tell them what's going wrong, they're never going to know. Or if somebody is taking... 150 meters to get into a turning lane and straddling two lanes, I'm going to honk at them. Get in your turning lane so 
so that the rest of the traffic can keep on going. I love that you honk. I love that you use your horn because that's exactly it. Michael, you said it perfectly. Unless somebody realizes they're doing it wrong, they may not even realize. You know, ah, yes. every single intersection, yeah, I'm okay to look at my phone, right? And, oh, duh, duh, yeah, it's green. Okay, here I go. That thing happens all the time. So it, with you driving around as much as you do, is there anything that you could see outside of changing the speed limit, bringing in legislation, like you say, trying to legislate stupid out of people? Is there anything that you see would would be a quick fix for anything that you you do determine that's going wrong i don't think there is a quick fix i think maybe we uh, hire people to, to stand at a intersection and give them authority to issue tickets for people sitting there with their phones in their hands while they're driving or or uh, tickets to pedestrians crossing when they're not supposed to cross like there's there's no way to fix it because people other than maybe just the public uh education like we've got the people. here's a thought we've got cameras in a lot of intersections and right now we've got red light cameras to catch people doing the old london left where the second person goes through the intersection and that can be a pretty hefty fine what if those cameras get good enough to catch people on their phones what if those cameras can pick up pedestrians i don't know how you'd ever find the pedestrian after that but let's say there was a way to do it based on let's say carrying their phone in their hand would you be in favor of ticketing after the fact using cameras Sure, because if that's going to deter people from doing it, then do it. I mean, they're doing something wrong that's affecting many, many people around them, right? It's not it's not an innocent crime they're doing. Like, they're affecting people's lives by being dangerous or slowing people down when, I, I mean, let's face it, everybody's in a hurry because everybody has a lot of things to do, me included. Absolutely. And when I get slowed, when I get slowed down by somebody just being stupid, it pisses me off. Time is money to me. I'm self-employed. I can't be sitting around waiting around for people to decide what to do. Michael, thanks for the call. Hey, you're welcome. Great Sorry, stuff. Now, that's that's always the perfect person to speak with is somebody who is on the roads. As Michael says he uses his horn. Would you be in favor? This is this is just popping into my head right now, and I'm sure that somebody can figure out a pitfall or two to all of this. But once you have cameras in every intersection, and those cameras are getting good, if our phones can take the pictures that they do, then cameras in intersections, they should be able to pick up somebody on their phone. If you could get an image of that, plus their license plate, should they not get that fine for using their cell phone while driving? What if you could have a cell phone in a pocket and you could ping who that person was? I mean, this is starting to infringe on, you know, personal security. But what if you could do that? If somebody was doing something wrong as a jaywalker or doing something wrong, we're heading to have that power. It's not implanting a chip. It's you holding your phone. That tells people exactly where you are, when you were there, and a camera would tell them what you were doing. Would you be in favor of that? 519-643-2222. Richard, how are you on this fine day? Good morning. How are, or good, actually, good afternoon, Mike. Good afternoon. Well, I just want to say, Mike, I'm not blaming it all on the drivers, and I'm not blaming it all on pedestrians, but I'd like to send a message out there to all pedestrians. Do not, and I can't stress this enough, do not put your life in the hands of a crosswalk. There was a notorious crosswalk in 
Victoria, B.C. when I was living there, Mike. It was on Douglas down near Queens. And one morning I was going to work to the Mustard Seed Food Bank. Anyways, right, I had the crosswalk light in my favor. And so I stepped out right to cross the street and a car whizzed right down Douglas, right? And I, <laughs> he just missed me by not even inches, right? I, I could feel him brush me. And I learned after that, Mike, now when I'm going through a crosswalk, I automatically, I wait to, for all vehicles to come to a full stop either way. I look out uh, on the corner of my eye to make sure nobody's coming behind me or whatever. And then I step out. But I have to say to pedestrians, when you're going through a crosswalk, please put your cell phones away just for one moment, right? And uh, be alert, right, to what is going on. And that last gentleman, yes, he is right to the point, right? It can be very frustrating for drivers. But I want to tell that gentleman, right, it can be very frustrating for pedestrians like myself who are playing by the rules, going by the book, right? And then you still try to run me down. So all I've got to say, to, again, to all pedestrians out there in London, and I can't stress this enough, and put this in your young children's heads, do not ever put your life in the hands of a crosswalk. On that note, Mike, you have a nice afternoon. Richard, thanks so much. And you know what? Richard hasn't lived in Victoria, B.C. for a while. That study that we talked about earlier this half hour was done in 2012 by the University of California at Berkeley showing people blowing through crosswalks and blowing through intersections ahead of when they were supposed to be. This hasn't changed. So how do we change it? We'll get into that in a little while. But if we are to bring back photo radar, and I've got no problem with photo radar. I've been caught on photo radar before in a school zone going not very much above the speed limit, but this was in a different province, and this was this was no exception. You're above the speed limit, three kilometers an hour, you're going to get ticketed for that. The three kilometer an hour was a lot less than what you would get if you were 15, 20 kilometers an hour over the speed limit, but this was no exception. You're above the speed limit, you get this. I think we'd have a lot of people griping about that, because it takes away a lot of that gray area. But in a place where you're not supposed to be doing something, if you're doing it, is it not to make people safer? Does it not make people safer when everybody follows the rules? Everybody hates hearing, yeah, but we're going to crack down on the rules. Oh, come on. You know, don't, don't be doing that. Give it a little leeway. But anymore, as Richard pointed out, as Michael pointed out, Anymore, you're at the mercy of who's behind the wheel and what else they might be doing behind there. Our vehicles have more and more toys in them, more and more screens, more and more things to keep you distracted. It's crazy. Think about it. If you were doing something wrong, if you were walking across the street, so you're not even driving, and they could ping your phone and figure out when you were there and show you on camera crossing against the signal... What do you think? Is it fair to give somebody like that a ticket after the fact? Be a way to look at it. I don't think it'd be too hard to make it happen. You'd need to hire people to watch those cameras. Other than that, though, shouldn't be too hard. Just use Canada Post. Mail out the ticket. 519-643-2222. Email mike at 980cfpl.ca. Got a couple more minutes for that. Do have to take a break right now. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. A lot of talk about speed limits today. I also want to crack down on crosswalk violators. Is that fair? Dave, what do you think? Oh, yeah, I think it's fair. 
I mean, it's almost impossible to get around uh, at some some points and it's bad enough driving in London uh, when there's no traffic, you know. Uh, but when you have uh, people walking across when they shouldn't be, it just bogs everything down. Yeah, I don't I don't mind that. I mean, you should have to follow the rules no matter what, because Michael pointed it out. It's not just the drivers. It is pedestrians as well. It's everybody just saying, yeah, I can. I'm just going to cross here. Drive down Hamilton Road. People don't even use the, the corners. No, I the thing I yeah, these people that just, you know, stand on like on the island on Wellington and try and run across and it's going to just you can't fix stupid. Right. But uh, um, what about bringing back the old traffic cop? Yeah, the guy would stand in the middle of the intersection and you know blow his whistle and and have the guys you know have the traffic going. They still do it in Europe, a lot of places. Heck, you'd get a lot more employment. Uh, you know, hiring another hundred of these uh, traffic cops, and and if they find a violation, they just pull out their phone and you know. You might find a way to bring in new recruits as well. I mean, I, I don't know how much of an entry-level position that could be, but it could be one of those things. Yeah, I, I don't mind it. I, I don't mind spending for policing. I really do not. You know, there are five things we need to spend on. Policing is definitely one of them. Dave, thanks for the call. Any no problem. 519-643-2222. Alexandra, how are you? Marilyn, I was talking to you. Oh, Alexandra. Well, thank you, dear. Um, if you missed it yesterday, Marilyn had said if she were to be named again, because we were talking about baby names, she would like the name Alexandra. Well, that's it, too. Holy mackerel, Andy. Isn't that great that you remembered that? Well, it's only been a day. I can hardly remember some days what I ate for breakfast, but that one kind of stuck with me. Well, I'm over the moon about that. Well, anyways, dear, I'm a good driver. I've been driving for years, and I'm as good as any man. And I've driven in Toronto. I took Norman down to CNIB on Bayview, uh, to the specialists down there, and so on and so forth. And I'm telling you, they're terrible drivers in Toronto. Talk about cutting you off. But anyways, uh, and there's bad drivers here. But I usually always give the pedestrian the pedestrian the break. You know, that's it. That's what you're the one in the car. They're the one in not the car. So I think ultimately it comes down to that. Unless you want a uh, a really disastrous situation, Marilyn. Thank you so much for the call. Well, I'll call you again tomorrow. Bye, Alexandra. Bye, dear. Bye, bye. We'll take a break for news. Matt Trevithick has everything that has been going on to get you right up to date. Speaking of baby names. The name Archie is not the big deal in the UK right now. It's actually the last name. We'll have that story just as a finish to what we were talking about off the start of London Live yesterday. And then more on driving and what other municipalities are doing. Marilyn mentioned it. Toronto's a horrible place to drive. Name a city. I don't care what it is. If it is over 50,000 people, it's a bad place to drive because people are driving the same way. Bigger cities, maybe just more traffic leads to tighter spaces and quicker moves and things like that. But let's face it, unless you're on an old country road, you're up against it. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We were talking yesterday on London Live about the new baby, the royal baby, Archie. Archie Harrison, Mountbatten, Windsor. They're not going to give him, apparently, a duke or a, you can't call him a prince, I guess. What else could you call him? I don't know. Whatever one of those titles would be. Apparently, he's not going to get one. But 
there's some discussion about his last name. Do you realize how contentious the last name issue is? Just to finish out the whole naming thing, if you go back in time when the current queen, Queen Elizabeth II, married Prince Philip, he was Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark, the house of Schleswig-Holstein-Sonderburg-Glucksburg. And that name wasn't really one that they wanted to have. You know, if you had to can you imagine teaching a five-year-old what his last name was. Yes, uh, you are Mark of Greece and Denmark of the house of Schleswig-Holstein-Sonderburg-Glucksburg. Imagine filling out your passport information on that. There's not as many spaces as you need. There's only 13 spaces. This is 75 letters. What do I do? So he named himself Mountbatten after his grandparents. And then when they started having kids, so Prince Charles is born, Prince Philip thought, well, we could just use the name Mountbatten. But Winston Churchill, who was the prime minister at the time, said, no, 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 no. You're using the name Windsor. That's the official royal name. So you have to use that. And Prince Philip was actually quoted as saying, I am nothing but a bloody amoeba. I am the only man in the country not allowed to give his name to his own children. And there's a royal biographer, Sally Bedell Smith, who has suggested that the reason... Prince Philip is 10 years older plus than his siblings is because Prince Philip was so bitter about this that he wouldn't have kids for 10 years. That finishes out the naming of the royal baby from yesterday. Up next, we'll continue our conversation about drivers, pedestrians, and what they're doing wrong, and maybe what we can do about it. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. In about a half hour from now, we'll be talking about fintechs. What is that? Kleenex? No, fintechs. If you don't know what that is or how they are making their way into our lives, get ready. Half hour from now, we'll figure that out. Let's continue our conversation because something that has been pointed out, and rightfully so, is the fact that what was being discussed this morning by Councillor Stephen Turner on the Craig Needle Show, which you can hear Monday to Friday from 9 until noon, is that City Council has a zero policy that no children be injured or killed. And Bill emailed in saying, stats show risk is less at 30, 40 kilometers an hour than 50. And Bill says this risk is just one of the issues. And... He's got stats that go to 2016 and the census that 10,615 people daily go to work in a car from the Argyle neighborhood and return, and that's a lot. And if you add that up for 250 days, that's 5.3 million trips. He says if you apply risk, wouldn't banning drinking and driving eliminate actual statistical data in London in real time? He says fuel for thought. Let's talk more about this with the executive director of Vision Zero Canada, Graham Larkin. Graham, thanks for taking some time out to discuss this again. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on again. 
around here, we're looking at photo radar. We are looking at reducing speed limits. But I want to take you back to a conversation that occurred about a half hour ago. Michael called in and he says, you can't legislate and fix stupidity. When you look at municipalities that try and bring in legislation to make their neighborhoods, their streets, their crosswalks safer, is it something that you believe can be effective well, uh, certainly, I believe in uh, in safe systems, and I well, I, sh- well, I shouldn't say I believe in safe systems. I should say I know about safe systems, and uh, this is not opinion. This is uh, based on scientific evidence and on the uh, the historic big picture and the geographical big picture. And I think we need to step back. Um, so I'm, you know, from Vision Zero Canada, what we do is we is we advocate for fail safe systems, and that means designing out the conflict. And uh, you led this uh, just now. By talking about child deaths, which I think is an excellent, uh, you know, thing to think about. Um, you know, one of the greatest campaigns to end uh, child deaths on the road, and but some people will scoff at that already, thinking, well, you know, how can you end it? Uh, was in the Netherlands, and in 1972, they had a campaign called Stop the Kindermord, which means stop the child murder, and uh, this was basically a bunch of parents uh, and kids. Uh, in a working-class neighborhood in, uh, in in Amsterdam, it really started this campaign, and uh, and they went and, and like long story short, they the child death rate in the Netherlands as a result of much of this action, and we can talk about you know what they how they implemented on the ground, but listen to this, it's terribly important. They went in 1971 from over 400 child deaths a year uh, in road uh, road deaths to. Uh, in 2010 to 14, okay, went from 400 to 14 deaths, and I hope that will get people's attention. Uh, and uh, and I can certainly, you know, I'm happy to tell you how they got there. Well, I'm fascinated to know how they got there. So 400 plus child deaths, and are we talking about children in cars being struck as pedestrians? No, no, this is just anyone in or out? This is, uh, in fact, most of them were outside of cars, and they're getting hit, in, like in this dangerous neighborhood. They're okay. just getting hit on the streets. And I'll tell you another. I'll front load this with another fun fact. The Netherlands, according to uh, these uh, driver satisfaction surveys uh, by Waze, W-A-Z-E, the driving app, uh, has the happiest drivers in the world. So I want to just lead with that as well as this fact that there's very, very low uh, child deaths. Those two things are terribly important. These are facts. This is not not like, well, here's what I think. Uh, Here's what I know. Uh, And now how they got there is not simple. Speed is always a factor, but broadly speaking, how they, the Netherlands, got radically, radically reduced uh, their, their road deaths, they have half of, of the death and injuries that we have in Canada, is by making it safe for uh, sort of optimize, let's say, for vulnerable road users. And like what I like to say is they designed out the conflict. Uh, that is the conflict between different modes, uh, especially between different modes, not just you know, uh, car on car, but car on on uh, on pedestrian, car on cyclists. So that's how they did it was through safe systems, which we now call Vision Zero. But this was Evon Letra. This was before they called it. You know, they call it sustainable safety in the Netherlands. But it's basically you know sort of sciencing the Dickens out of this and finding every means possible, uh, working on many many fronts to make it safer for for you know vulnerable road users, act, active transit. We're talking with Graham Larkin, Executive Director of Vision Zero Canada. 
It is so interesting that this was 1971, and now you've got stats that say going from 400-plus child deaths down to 14 in 2010, the rest of the world has to have been watching. Why is it that we don't know more about this? Why is it that we don't have something that is similar anywhere in Canada right now? Well, I mean, some of the world was watching is the first way to answer that question. If, if you actually go to countries that are very much like Canada, uh, many Scandinavian countries have equal levels of, you know, very, very, you know, Sweden is where, for instance, is where the, the term Vision Zero is coined. It's cold. It's snowy. It can even be hilly, a lot like Canada. So it's probably more like London even than, than uh, the Netherlands in terms of climate. And what happens there is that it's also very, very bike-friendly and and happy drivers now how they and, and i okay i just caught myself saying bike friendly and it's not all about making things friendly for bikes but it's also but it's interesting to note that in those very countries the netherlands and sweden let's say i could say denmark as well there's something like uh 20 30 times the number of cyclists on on the road and when you put those two facts together that is half the number of death and serious injuries in the road and exponentially more uh you know cyclists than well, that's interesting. That shows you that it's very, very safe, a very low risk. Now, it's not all about bikes, but I would say that cyclists are an indicator species. I would say that when it's safe for cyclists, uh, it's also safe for uh, for people walking, people in wheelchairs, all the other ways you can get around without being surrounded by all this, uh, you know, two tons of steel. And and so that's anyway. That's it's a bit of a setup. But I haven't, you know. Then we can talk about how they did it, I guess, and if, if we have a little more time. Yeah, absolutely. That. We definitely have more time for that. Graham Larkin with us, Executive Director of Vision Zero Canada, because let me guess, back in 1971 and then in the years after in some of the other Scandinavian countries, it's not like they were installing brand new roads everywhere and could start from scratch, right? They did this with an existing infrastructure? Yeah, well, the infrastructure is a key is a key ter- term here, and I think that broadly speaking, uh, you know, a couple of things are speed control, uh, infrastructure, and, and and we can talk about what that means. Uh, vehicle regulation uh, that can be things like um, even side guards on trucks or not having big trucks barreling through 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 downtown neighborhoods. You know, there's even even you know really again getting to big picture, we can talk about all those things. But if we're here today, you know, to talk about speed, uh, which is always a factor, again, I think I've made it clear that there's no silver bullet to safe systems. You have to work on like 10 and 20 different little things at once, everything from improving the crossing and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, having a little bit more time to cross or a pedestrian island. I mean, I could talk all day about the details, but just talking about speed, uh, broadly speaking, here's the the deal. Uh, With speed, what you need to do is first set the right limits. And, and, and you'll hear people say, well, it doesn't matter because people won't drive at that if you don't enforce it or if you don't rebuild the roads. But the bottom line is you're not allowed to put in, let's say, a speed bump that calms things down to make your kids safe uh, if they're walking to school, like let's say it's going to a school zone, until you have the, the speed there first. And so you have to get the horse before the cart. That's one thing. But and then now we're talking about specifics of speeds. And once again, I'm going to bring in evidence. I'm not going to overwhelm people with data, but I've given this sort of broad historic and geographic big picture now we're going to get down to the science of speed and basically what we're trying to do is reduce uh reduce harm reduce and especially the blunt impact of of, uh, a car hitting a body and one of the things that they do in the netherlands is there in fact uh in in many many countries uh than the safer countries 
the norm for urban areas. And I hope people are sitting down and, and uh, you know, maybe they're going to freak out, uh, but it's actually uh, 30 kilometers per hour, not 40. Uh, and, and again, just to give you just one last set of statistics, uh, or the, you know, like we can talk about more if you want, but let me just give you one more thing. So 50 kilometers per hour, if you get hit by a car, uh, then the chance that you have a 1.5 uh, out of 10 chance of survival. Uh, so I guess just uh, uh, 15%. Yeah. Uh, and, and that has to do with stopping distance. That has to do with reaction time. And that has to do with blood impact. So you're actually, uh, you know, there's also less chance of getting hit if you're going slower. But, but if, you, if you get hit, okay, there's 1.5 uh, chance of survival. At 40 kilometers per hour, there's a, there's a 7 in 10 chance of survival. And at 30 kilometers per hour, there's a 9 in 10 chance of survival. And the 30 kilometers per hour, or 20 miles per hour, as, as it, you know, in, in, in some countries like the UK, where they implement a lot, the 30 kilometers per hour, which is what it is in the Netherlands, there, it's much, much, much safer. And let's not forget, they have the happiest drivers in the world. So it doesn't necessarily, and, 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 I, and I'd say that's for two reasons. One is it's less stressful because they've designed out the conflict. They've made it so that people aren't all in each other's way. And the other reason why drivers are happier is because there's way, way fewer cars on the road. These space hogs, that are the things that are really in your way, even though it might not feel like it, those are off the road. So uh, again, if we want to look at the science of it, then that's sort of the short answer. We're talking with Graham Larkin, Executive Director of Vision Zero Canada. So that takes into account speed. Graham, before we let you go, you mentioned there are all kinds of factors that have to work together. Along with speed, what are the key ones in order to make the system safer? Well, even in terms of speed, let's say, uh, in addition to setting the limit, you might, you know, you might need some level of enforcement of that, and you might need some level of traffic calming, let's say a speed bumper, or even just narrowing the lane a little bit will make people drive more cautiously and, and avoid collision, both for people in the car and outside of the car. Uh, so there's that. Uh, and obviously, enforcement of all kinds, the kinds we know about, about drunk driving, reckless driving and stuff. I mean, that's super important to have to have uh, you know, cops keeping an eye on all of that and on the speed, or maybe not cops, maybe uh, having uh, you know, photo radar for red light running, terrible, terrible uh, you know, tragedies uh, that we see all the time in that, running red lights and stop signs, or, or have it for, or indeed have it for speeding, have, um, have, have uh, you know, say it's more economical to have that done uh, via machine, and then people you know, obviously looking at the data behind the machine. So, so those are all things. And there's many, many other things. And that, I think it's almost another conversation, Mike, in terms of, of the details of, uh, of, you know, safe pedestrian crossings, uh, separated uh, bike lanes that are really protected. There's all kinds of neat tricks to doing this. And I think if you look, you know, I've ridden a bike in, in, in the Netherlands, and uh, it's nothing like riding a bike here. I don't like riding a bike in, in Ottawa where I live, but I love riding a bike there. And as I say, they have the happiest drivers, too. And it's because... It's just conflict-free. It's really a win-win-win situation. And one of the things that we need to measure in all of this, too, is the number of kids walking safely to school and walking to school. And I'm of an age in my early 50s where I did walk to school, and, and it's really not safe for my kids to do so. My youngest is, uh, is, is, is 13, and that's what got me started in all this. I wasn't trained any of this stuff, but I, got, I so love the idea of kids being active and so yeah. got so frustrated with 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 how unsafe uh, that my, my kids walked to school was that that's that's how i got into this uh, vision zero canada well graham let's mark it down let's have a conversation about pedestrians in the near future okay 
Anytime, Mike. Always a pleasure. Graham, thanks so much for the time. Sure. That's Graham Larkin, Executive Director of Vision Zero Canada. Look at those stats. You can't argue with the numbers. As Graham said, he can overwhelm us with data, but the data doesn't lie. Bill had sent some in as well. If you're going 50 kilometers an hour and you hit a person, that person's odds of surviving, 1 in 10. If you are going 40, according to the numbers that Graham gave us, you have a 7 in 10 chance of surviving. If you're going 30, 9 in 10 chance. Note from Ron, and Ron says, I have driven in the Netherlands. I am from there. They have zero tolerance for speeding. One kilometer over and you get a ticket. Here you can go 20 over and nothing. He says, we need zero tolerance here. That is the key to reducing the issue. And then Trevor pointed out something that we need to look into, actually. Trevor says, one must be careful. The city installed bike lanes on White Oak Road, but then left the speed limit at 60 and 70. Now we have a steady stream of heavy trucks going 80 or 90 kilometers an hour past houses, and Canada Post actually canceled mail delivery service because it was too dangerous on that road. Speed should have been decreased. Speed should be reduced all over to 50 and 40 in the city. And immediately people are going to go, I'd I'd never get anywhere. Happiest drivers, according to Graham Larkin, who makes this his business, are in the Netherlands, where it's 30 kilometers an hour. And if you get bumped at 30 kilometers an hour, you have a 9 in 10 chance of surviving. I'll give up the extra three minutes it'll take me to get somewhere in the city in order to bring those odds and change it from 1 in 10. How about you? Email Mike at 980cfpl.ca if you want to chime in. We'll let you know what's still ahead on London Live when we return. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Coming up, fintechs invading our lives. Maple Leaf Foods will have an open house tonight at the Lamplighter. If you want to ask a question, you can. We'll ask some questions of Maple Leaf Foods before the end of the next half hour. And the giant beaver. Don't have to say any more than that, do we? News is next. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Something we have to look into this hour on London Live did the dog die.com who would make a website like that we'll fill you in in about a half hour on the story and then we got to find these people did the dog die.com lots to get to before then we're going to talk with maple leaf foods in about 12 minutes from now they have an open house tonight if you want to go and ask any questions about the new plant that is going to be opening we talked with rob mcneil yesterday He is with Stop Maple Leaf Violence, and he has had his concerns about some of the wildlife in the area where the plant is going to be built, uh, some other concerns about the use of that plant. So we will talk with Janet Riley, who is a VP of Community and Public Affairs with Maple Leaf Foods. And if you can't be there tonight, maybe we can ask some of the questions that you'd be looking for answers to. So that comes up in about 12 minutes. First, though, got to talk about how we're paying for things. It's becoming easier and easier. I don't know where we're headed with this. Having money in your hands, being able to appreciate the transaction, is probably, in our minds, a whole lot easier than just going doot, boop, deep, whatever the noise is. 
and paying for things. But I watch my children. I, I always like to see what they're doing. They get bank account updates on a daily basis to their phone. So they know exactly how much money they've spent. They know exactly what they've spent it on. In other words, it's kind of a reminder. If all of a sudden at the end of the day you get, here are your transactions for the day, and you see, wow, I spent uh, 6 bucks on donuts, and then uh, I spent $4 on licorice. What was I thinking? And then I spent another $5 on a store I don't remember going to. Wait a minute. But that's what they do. They're able to see all their transactions and realize, you know what? I did some stupid spending today. I'm going to get better tomorrow. Most of us don't do that. We're so used to having once used cash. Now it's just boop, beep, boop. And now we pay for things. Well... Apple is getting more and more into the paying of things. Apple Pay, you have your wallet on iPhones. It's amazing to see where this company has taken itself. Think about it. Apple was a computer company. And then Steve Jobs decided, you know, maybe it's time to get out of computers. Maybe it's time to get into phones and smartphones. And we'll try and make one that does things a whole lot more simply than anybody else's. Next thing you know, the iPhone took off. And then... Now so much has been put into the iPhone, that's fine, but they've kind of branched out again, and they have gone into Apple Pay. If you look at transactions from 2017 to 2018, you have a tripling from, let's say, whatever it was, to more than $1 billion. And that number is probably going to keep going up and up. So you've got Apple getting into the credit card game and really the banking game. Joining us right now to enlighten us a little bit more about this is Dave Feller. Dave is the CEO of Mogo. Dave, Apple has kind of been leaning this way for a while now, haven't they? Obviously, it started with Apple Pay, right? And now they're obviously expanding into specifically in the U.S., uh, credit cards, right? So when you look at that happening, is that something that everybody welcomes with open arms? Hey, bring on the competition? Or is this a, a potentially landscape-changing type thing as, as they continue to put their foothold in? Yeah, I mean, I think it should be looked at both ways. Uh, the, the reality is the kind of consumer financial space landscape has been dramatically changing and going uh, undergoing its own you know, digital revolution, just like every other space. We In Canada, most Canadians are still predominantly relying on the banks for their kind of day-to-day, quote, banking. But increasingly, it's the new technology-driven fintech companies that are really driving the innovation. Apple getting into the game with a credit card uh, is just another example of, you know, obviously a technology-driven company uh, leveraging innovation. They really didn't come up with necessarily anything innovative in the solution. It's just gone a lot more kind of news, given that it is Apple. And from a consumer perspective, which, you know, that should be all of our perspective, this competition is welcome. It's gonna, this innovation from, from the fintechs, including Apple, is going to continue to bring uh, a better experience, a better solution, a better value proposition to consumers, no different than every other space, including, you know, Netflix versus, you know, the traditional media companies, et cetera. I mean, this is all, all good for consumers. We're talking with Mogo CEO David Feller about Apple and credit cards and maybe the the future of how we all make payments for things. When you look at a credit card, how easy is it to just say, you know what, I'd like to launch a credit card. Could you do it from your basement or does that tend to get a knock on the door from police saying, what are you doing in your basement? 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's not easy to launch a credit card. I mean, in Canada, obviously every country is different. There's a whole bunch of rules and regulations. Uh, typically only banks can actually launch a credit card. You need a banking license typically to, to launch a credit card. So it's not an easy thing to do. It's complex. I think the, the most relevant point here is where financial services are going, and this is our, our view at, at MoGo, is increasingly consumers are looking for a mobile-first digital platform that makes it easy for me to be financially healthy. And even Apple had talked about with their credit card, hey, we've got some features in here that make it a little easier to make better financial decisions. And so that, to me, is really where things are going, and that's really going to be the main disruption to the banks in Canada Consumers are looking for a really a financial wellness platform, right? Make it easy for me to be in control of my finances. And by the way, the reality is for most consumers, credit cards make it too easy to overspend. So our view is, you know, and this is why we have the MoGo prepaid Visa card, it gives you some of the conveniences of a credit card, but it's all about using your own money. And, and that is because the stats show you spend considerably more when you use a credit card versus using your own money, Right. And we think that's going to be the main trend. And you're seeing it with the stats right now. Every day we're seeing new stats. There was one in the paper the other day. Over a third of Canadians are one rake height away from bankruptcy, or almost 50% of Canadians are a few hundred dollars away from insolvency. It just shows you that what's happening is, while the Canadian banks continue to make record profits, most consumers are struggling to be financially healthy. And, and that's why the trend's going to be they want solutions to make it way easier to be in control of their finances. And that's where the what innovation is going to drive. We're talking with David Feller, who's the CEO at Mogo, and we're talking about Apple getting involved in the credit card industry. How about the banking industry? You mentioned that Canada's banks, I mean, you can look at huge profits. They made close to $100 billion in pre-tax profits in 2017 alone. That's right. I'm not sure what the 2018 stats are, but maybe they're comparable. What are they going to be saying about a, a big entity like Apple kind of getting in on their turf? Yeah, obviously, just like Apple Pay, a lot of them weren't happy about that. They knew once Apple kind of got into to that space, and, and there's already that disintermediation that's continuing to happen. So now the good news is what it is driving is the banks actually have to get way more competitive. So, you know, unfortunately in Canada, we know that ultimately banking, the five banks control like, you know, over 90% of, of banking and really consumer finance in Canada. What this competition, especially when you get a player like Apple in is saying, hey, we have to get way more competitive, way more innovative, um, we're, which me also means that we can't continue to do things like charge $15 a month for a bank account, not when somebody can click a button and potentially move over to you know, a new uh, fintech, including a player like Apple. So this is going to drive, um, in my view, going to force the banks to try to get way more aggressive on, on being way more innovative in their product offering. Um, but also um, they're going to have to get more aggressive on their pricing as well. And that's obviously not something they're going to rush to do because they're publicly traded companies. They want to see their earnings continue to increase year over year. Uh, they're not going to rush to get rid of, you know, obviously a whole bunch of areas which are, are helping to drive that revenue and profitability. Dave, you just used the term fintech. That's something that I don't know how long it's been around the financial world, but in our own vocabularies, it's just it's just kind of getting in there. What exactly is a fintech, and and what's it doing? 
Yeah, so fintech is just financial technology, and obviously it, it really is about a company that is focused on financial services but is a technology company at heart. And unlike the banks that obviously, you know, traditionally were more kind of physical location, brick and mortar, obviously they have technology, but they've got legacy technology. Increasingly, the the new consumer, obviously, if you think about where is our money management going, it's all going to technology. You're going to do it all on your phone, which means it's essentially all software driven. And so at, at our core at MoGo, we are a technology company. We build software. We do software releases. We leverage modern technology, we're in the cloud, all of these things that a modern technology company would be built on, the challenge for the banks, obviously, is their legacy. They've been around for, in some cases, over 100 years, and so they're trying to transition to this new world, and and as we've seen in every other industry, it isn't easy. So besides on the technology front, you've got the legacy kind of business model challenges, uh, and you put all those things together, and that's why very rarely have you ever seen an industry that gets disrupted that was actually ended up being led by the existing incumbents. That, that has really never happened, whether it's an Amazon, a Walmart, uh, a Netflix, Blockbuster, the whole media, everything else. So this whole technology shift is going to bring out uh, about a completely set of new companies that ultimately, I believe, will end up dominating consumer finance, and banking is just a part of that. How long do you think that'll take? Um, well, it's already happening. I think it, you're going to, you know, uh, it's one of those ones where, you know, I think over the next five to ten years, especially as, you know, we see the millennials are now the, the main demographic, and you've got Gen Z that are even more digitally inclined than millennials. They're now in college and starting to go into the workforce. So, you know, as you're seeing this, this shift, you know, it's accelerating. You know, that's, that's my view. This, is, this shift is going to be happening over the next, within the next ten years the landscape is going to look completely different than what it looks like today. Dave, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. And like you said, it should be good for consumers in the long run. So uh, we always like stories that are good for consumers in the long run. Absolutely. Take care. Great. Thanks. Dave Feller, CEO of Mogo, talking about fintechs, Apple's place in the landscape, and other financial technology companies that would be moving in. And as he says... More competition? Sure, that that tends to help out, right? Isn't that what we're dealing with? We talked about this earlier this week with cell phones. Not enough competition there. We are going to return in a moment to talk with Maple Leaf Foods. They have an open house tonight, and it will be taking place from 5 to 7 at the Lamplighter Inn on Wellington Road. And anybody's welcome to go and ask questions. Well, we'll ask some questions next. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Maple Leaf Foods is opening a plant, and we know that, and we also know that there has been some concern about it from at least one group. We also know that people tend to have questions when new things open, questions about jobs, questions about how the plant is dealing with things. Tonight, Maple Leaf Foods has an open house, 5 to 7, Lamplighter Inn in London, where they're going to address some of those things. But we have an opportunity to ask some questions right now. Janet Riley is their Vice President of Community and Public Affairs and joins us on London Live. Janet, how are things today? I'm great. I'm excited to come to London in a little while. 
Well, for anybody who might not be able to be there at the lamplighter tonight between 5 and 7, is there any way we could get a sneak preview of what's being discussed? Sure. We're going to have our top experts from our company there to interact with our community about any questions they may have about the construction of our new plant. So our chief veterinarian is going to be there, people from our environmental division. Uh, We're going to have the head of our poultry group present and about 15 people from Maple Leaf Foods. And it's part of our continuing commitment to dialogue with the community and be transparent about the progress on this plant and what the company, what the community can expect. Why do you feel that is important or why do you feel it's even necessary to do that? Well, this is a significant build in the community and we're excited And I think the community is excited as well. And we just want to make sure that if there are questions out there, um, that that we can answer them directly and that they can can come and interface with our team, you know, one-on-one. And so we're going to have food and drink and two hours to just respond to to our community members. Typically, do people focus in on the animals, the chickens in this case, or do they focus in on other issues? Um, it, it ranges. Different people have different questions. Some people want to know, you know, what are the employment opportunities and how can they, uh, how can they apply for jobs down the road? Other people do have questions about how animals will be handled and cared for. And so we want to make sure we've got every expert available to answer those questions directly. What do you want people to know in terms of, of how the animals are cared for? Well, This is a really wonderful opportunity to build a plant from the ground up and to design it for optimal animal care, and that's what we're doing. We're going to have the best technologies we can, the best procedures that we can can have in place to ensure that animals are cared for and that we create as low stress an environment as we possibly can. It's just a wonderful opportunity to build this state-of-the-art facility. I mean, animal care is our ethical obligation um, it's what consumers expect of us, and we are committed to meeting expectations and to performing at the the highest level we can in animal care. We're talking with Janet Riley, Vice President of Communications and Public Affairs with Maple Leaf Foods. In terms of standards, how difficult are the, the standards to meet, or how rigid are the standards that are set out? Well, there are strict standards that are that are established by the government, and you know, the meat and poultry industry is very, very heavily regulated and inspected continuously to make sure that we're meeting food safety requirements, animal welfare requirements. But we seek not to not just to meet our regulatory requirements; we seek to exceed them. And so, we follow uh, some of the best animal care standards that exist. They're considered state of the art in the industry. And we're audited by external auditors to make sure that we're, we're meeting those standards. Um, so I think that the, the public should feel very, very good about the animal care that's going to be occurring in this plant. We've even had the world's leading expert on animal care in the meat and poultry industry, Dr. Temple Grandin, to our headquarters in February. And we were able to show her what the plant was going to look like and all the practices that we were going to have in place. And I hate to put words in her mouth, but I think it's safe to say she was very impressed. 
We're talking with Janet Riley, Vice President of Communications and Public Affairs with Maple Leaf Foods. One thing that has been brought up by one group is that there are birds that are in the area where the plant will be, and that group feels that those birds are going to be disrupted. How do you approach or deal with something like that? Well, you know, there's, there's been a process in place, and we are aware that um, there were concerns expressed, but those have been reviewed and uh, the local officials there have determined that, that we're meeting, um, we're in compliance, and that the plans that we've made will protect the wildlife and the environment. So, you know, we respect the, the views of those who disagree, but um, we are really committed to protecting the environment and the animals in our care and the, the animals that uh, are in the local community, in, in, the, uh, in the environment there. Janet, let's talk jobs before we finish up, and that's something that maybe needs a little bit of clarification because when it was first announced, it was said, this is how many jobs there will be, and then there was some thought that, well, people already working within Maple Leaf Foods may take over some of those jobs. What is the situation in terms of jobs for this particular plant? Well, we expect to um, employ 1,450 people in, in the plant, and um, there, there may be uh, many of our, we may have Maple Leaf employees that fill many of those jobs, but we will certainly have others where we're going to be seeking uh, uh, to employ people from the local community. How that breaks down I'm, is not fully clear at this moment, but I can assure you that we're going to be looking for um, Many good people to staff this state-of-the-art plant, and one of the reasons that we selected London is because we felt that there would be a really good workforce uh, to help us staff this plant and be partners in bringing the state-of-the-art plant to life. As far as the timeline goes, any idea on when you might start to seek any of the open positions that you have? Ah, that's going to be a little bit closer, and I don't have that closer to... um, uh, the opening of the plant, and I don't have an exact date, but we'll certainly get that out to the community. Okay. Well, tonight, 5 to 7, Lamplighter in. If you have any further questions, then Maple Leaf Foods will be there to answer those questions. Anything else you think we need to know before we wrap up? I just want to say to the London community, thank you for welcoming us there. We are excited to be there, and we're excited to dialogue with you tonight. So I hope if you have any questions, um, you'll join us. But if you don't, you can always reach out to us and uh, we'll get answers to any of your questions. And what's the best way to reach Maple Leaf Foods? Uh, You can go to our website, mapleleaffoods.com, and there's contact information right there. Janet, thanks so much for the time today. Great, thank you. Janet Riley, VP of Community and Public Affairs with Maple Leaf Foods. So there is some talk about jobs, some talk about standards, some talk about animals, and there will be more discussion tonight. More discussion ahead on London Live. The giant beaver. While we're talking animals, when you get a chance to talk about the giant beaver, and we mean giant, don't worry, he's not going to show up in your backyard. Hasn't been seen for 10,000 years. So why is he in the news? Well, Western University has something to do with that. That story in 10 minutes. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Hey, can we have a round of applause? A few claps here for a couple of teams who put on a show last night at the Sports Center at Western Fair District. The London Nationals put on a show this season. 
Made it all the way to overtime last night of the Sutherland Cup Championship, Game 7. This is something that we talk about just briefly this week on Around the OHL, getting to that final game. Around the OHL is a podcast, which you can find wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And we talk OHL hockey. This week, we talk with Peter Ng. He played goalie for the London Knights, played goalie for the Winter Spitfires in 1988. And in the playoffs, they didn't lose. Then they went to the Memorial Cup, and they still didn't lose. Made it all the way to the Memorial Cup final. That's where they lost their first postseason game. Came just that close. Last night, London and Waterloo got as close as you could get to a championship. Overtime of the championship game. And... The goal was one of those, hey, that looks like an overtime goal where the puck came back to the blue line and a Waterloo defenseman just kind of whiffed it at the net. Wasn't a hard shot, but London's goalie, Zach Springer, likely the first time he got a look at that puck is when it had mostly sailed past his shoulder. It just it, it wasn't, I think it was deflected maybe. It's it was it was tough. It was tough to see that happen. Waterloo celebrates the London Nationals came just that close. And as hard as it is for those guys today, I remember after the London Knights had played in a Memorial Cup final in Shawinigan in 2012, and they went to overtime championship game, deciding game. Very much like what happened with the London Nationals yesterday. And they ended up losing that game. And after the game, there was a tent area where a lot of the players and their families and their friends and their loved ones who were there, they were all hanging out. It was very quiet, and it was, it was, just, it was sad. And Dick Hunter, who is the father of Mark and Dale Hunter, one of the wisest men, one of the toughest men you would ever meet, he was – leaning up against a railing. And so I kind of wandered over and he said, you know, I used to take winning and losing and, and it, it used to hit hard when we lost. And he said, and then I lost my wife. And then I realized it was just a game. And the London Knights came back that next year, won another OHL championship in 2016. They got to overtime of the Memorial Cup and they won it. And sometimes you're on the right side Sometimes you're on the wrong side, but that line always put things into perspective. Let's take a break. Up next, we will talk about a finding courtesy of a graduate of Western University who is now pursuing her education in the UK. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. When you get an opportunity to talk about giant beavers in Canada, you cannot turn that opportunity down. And that's what we have an opportunity to do. What? What are you talking about, giant beavers in Canada? Well, you know, beavers. Beavers are our national animal, right? I've often wondered if that was the right move. Why don't we have a... a a more revered animal. You know, we have moose. There are birds that are native to Canada. We could look and say, this 
This is our national animal. Because the beaver is technically the... Am I getting that right? The beaver is technically Canada's national animal, right? That's our national symbol. Yeah. That's it. It's on our nickel. Um, People have asked the question, why is the beaver our national animal? Well, it is the an official emblem of Canada. And if we go back to the fur trade and the Hudson's Bay Company, they actually put the beaver on their coat of arms back in 1621 before we were even a country, long before we were even a country. So the history of the beaver dates back a long, long way. But courtesy of a couple of researchers, one who had graduated from Western University and is now in the UK, we get to find out about not just a beaver, a giant beaver. Because in North America, years and years ago, the giant beaver was an animal that either walked or hopped, or I, I don't know how it got around. It was massive. This thing was huge. And we get to find out more about that. And maybe, just maybe, this is why the beaver would be looked at as a national emblem of what has now become Canada. Joining us is Tessa Plint. And Tessa is, as we said, a former Western graduate student. She is continuing her studies at Harriet Watt University in the UK. And she knows more about giant beavers than all of us put together. So let's share in the knowledge, shall we? Uh, Tessa, welcome to London Live. How are things right now in the UK? They're fantastic right now. It's not even raining. Really? Okay, we'll have to compare cloud cover. We've got a lot of cloud cover today in London, Ontario. Do you have sunshine? No, we don't have that. That's a rare commodity. We have full cloud coverage. Okay, well, I mean, sunny days, like you say, are kind of rare. How many would you get a week? Uh, It's more on the month scale. (laughs) So picture London, Ontario in January and February. Instances of sunshine. Yes, instances. I think the correct UK term for the weather reports are hints of brightening. (laughs) That's great. We've got to use that around here. Hints of brightening. We're talking with Tessa Plint, who is a former Western graduate student, and she is working right now, continuing her studies at Harriet Watt University in the UK, and has been part of a very interesting study that will take us not to present day and what the weather looks like, but back about 10,000 thousand years ago to the last ice age and uh, our our favorite mascot for this country the beaver uh, tessa if we go back ten thousand years uh, can you describe what beavers maybe looked like at that point well back about ten thousand years ago during the last ice age north american beavers were a little bit different there was another beaver species on the landscape in addition to the one that we see today and it was the giant beaver so we're talking about a beaver that's literally the size of a small black bear roaming around the landscape. Come on. A small black bear? Mm, absolutely. So but it, it looked like a beaver? Be... Yep. It was a species of beaver. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to picture it right now. We've got a beaver with the flat tail, maybe. Do we know about flat tail? It actually would have had more uh, a tail that looked more like a muskrat tail, so long and skinny, not paddle-shaped one like we see for the North American beaver today. What about kind of the rodent teeth? Would it have that kind of a face? Yep, it would have a very, very, very similar face. It had even bigger teeth than the beaver that we see today. It has 
massive incisors, the massive front teeth. They actually almost have the size of like bananas sticking out of the front of this animal's face. They're, they're massive. Wow. I don't know that that would quite be our cute and cuddly little wood-piling mascot if, uh, if that was the species that survived to today. Okay, so these creatures were, would they be roaming around? Did they hop around? So they were primarily, they were semi-aquatic mammals, so they would have spent a lot of their time living in wetland habitat. Um, but it's probably for the best that they became extinct because if you, you had these, uh, these giant beavers roaming around Ontario 10,000 years ago, if you went up to cottage country and, you know, or swimming in your lake at your cottage, you probably wouldn't want to encounter a bear-sized beaver in the water. <laughs> we are talking with Tessa Plint, former Western graduate student, continuing her studies in England and the UK at Harriet Watt University. And we're talking about the giant beaver. This was not the little one that goes in the Mountie outfit that you find all over the place. You go to Ottawa, you go to Banff, Alberta, you'll find the nice little beaver. This is a guy who weighed a lot, uh, hung out in the water, had banana-sized incisor teeth, didn't build dams, you were saying, Tessa. So what did this beaver likely do? This beaver would have been swimming around wetland habitat, and it would have been eating a lot of aquatic plants, primarily submerged aquatic plants. So plants that grow underwater would be swimming out into a lake, into a pond, and diving down uh, to eat those plants. We mentioned before that you had to go back 10,000 years to figure this out. This is not done through a time machine of any kind. (laughs) How do you actually go back to figure out what this animal ate if you don't really have the animal to ask? Absolutely. So we had the next best thing to a time machine, which is stable isotopes. So stable isotopes are chemical tracers. And in the isotopic world, you are what you eat, plus a few per mil, as the saying goes. So what that basically means is that the food that you eat, the stable isotopic composition, or the stable isotopic signature of the food that you eat becomes incorporated into your tissues. And because the stable isotope ratios remain constant throughout the animal's life, and even after death, we can go and take an animal that lived and died hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago, and we can look at these isotopic ratios, and they can provide information about what that animal was eating. That is amazing. How new is this ability to use isotopes? It's been around for the last, I think, 70 years, perhaps. Okay. Are we just kind of figuring out how to do it in a much better way? It's definitely becoming more um, efficient. The analytical techniques are definitely becoming more efficient over time. Um, It's quite a common technique, especially when you're studying archaeological or paleontological material. And in that case, the giant beaver falls into that. I wonder what they would find in all of us in 10,000 years if they went back. Look at all the fries that person was eating. That's amazing. Look at Big Macs everywhere. Well, the giant beaver got its fill of aquatic plants. Do we know what happened to the giant beaver? Why we don't have them bounding around our world or swishing around our lakes today? So there's multiple theories about why the giant beaver went extinct at the end of the last ice age. Um, Many, many other species of megafauna or large-bodied animals also went extinct around 10,000 years ago in North America and all over the world. And there's two different hypotheses out there for what caused the extinction, and those come down to anthropogenic activities or human impact or climate change. Um, And in our research with the giant beaver, we found that the giant beaver was particularly dependent on wetland habitat for shelter for predators, for food, etc. It was not quite as adaptable, perhaps, as, say, the modern beaver that we have today that can modify its 
ecosystem. It's an ecosystem engineer. It can basically build more wetlands as it requires. And this dependence on wetland habitat likely made the giant beaver very susceptible to climate change, particularly as the environment in North America became uh, warmer and drier towards the, the end of the last ice age about 10,000 years ago. Wow. Well, this is fantastic stuff. We really appreciate your time, Tessa, and all the best with future research. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Tessa Plint, former Western graduate student. She is continuing her studies at Harriet Watt University. <laughs> Signs of brightening, is that what she said, instead of sunshine? Yeah, that's that's kind of what we get around here a little bit. Soon summer will come. We didn't have much of a winter. I'd rather the Vancouver spring, to tell you the truth. I'll take this over. We could have still had snow up until end of last week, wouldn't you? We'll take a break. Let's close out. Got a great email from Alex, and I want to read it to you because it kind of goes back to our conversation that we had earlier regarding traffic. And, well, not necessarily even traffic. Speed limits and pedestrian crossings. Traffic-related things. And Alex has made some great points. So we'll get to that next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We were talking national animals. Woody says, I'm missing a joke here. Things go over my head so easily. I hope I'm not saying anything that I shouldn't be saying. See, I'm not even sure. Woody says, hey, Mike, we have two national animals, the beaver and Canadian horse. What am I missing? That's not a moose. What am I missing? How am I not getting that? Woody, help me out. Uh, we, We could change the animal, but you know what? It's the beaver. When you walk into a place in Ottawa, when you walk into a place in Banff, those tend to be the two places that these exist all over the place. And you see the little plush beaver in the Mountie outfit? You can't beat that. That right there. It's our national symbol. Beaver in a Mountie outfit? You don't get more Canadian than that. Giant beaver with banana-sized fangs? Fortunately, we don't have to get Canadian like that. Okay, let's go back to our conversation just one more time about... Oh, hang on. I'm getting some help. Uh, Canadian horse is real. Parliament recognized it in 2002 as the National Horse of Canada. Thank you to Andrew. What? Why do I not remember this? Canadian horse? The official horse or the National Horse of Canada? Does it look like a horse? It's not a zebra, right? It's not a unicorn. Canadian horse. Okay, Woody, I thought I thought you were putting one by me. Maybe you were not. But I still don't get it. When why did that happen? Why and where is it? The thing is not it's not made into a big deal. It's not like, hey, here comes Canada Day on Parliament Hill. Just a second. Before we light off the fireworks display, make room, everybody. Here comes the Canadian horse. No, that doesn't happen. What's a Canadian horse look like? Now I want it to be a unicorn. Now I want it to be a zebra. I want it to be a red and white zebra. Is that a thing? Is that the Canadian horse? I'm not sure. Woody says, yeah, no joke. This is real. And Woody, you are exactly right. Thank you for sending that through. Okay. 
let's go back to our conversation where maybe we need to be riding horseback. Maybe we need to go back to a horse and buggy in order to keep our roads and our pedestrians completely safe. But Alex says, listening to the show, he says, having spent time as a military transport officer, I can tell you that things like road systems and traffic flow are designed taking into account speed limits, laws, proper driving. So if you are driving 60 kilometers an hour in a 50 zone, rolling through stop signs and through right-hand turns at red lights and driving distracted or aggressively, you are throwing off the synchronization of the system. This makes perfect sense. This actually affects drive time, bus schedules, etc. He says, at stop signs and lights, if you don't feel the car sit back, you are still rolling forward and not really stopped. The law is to come to a complete stop, which takes about three seconds per car. In some jurisdictions, red light cameras even fine people for rolling through on turns. At any speed, the safe distance is three seconds off the bumper in front. It takes a second for you to recognize a need to stop and move your foot from gas to brake. Because remember, that's got to come from the brain. This is me adding this in. It's got to come from the brain to your foot. That's why drag racers, I am completely impressed by how quickly you get off the start. And then, as Alex says, it takes two seconds to completely stop. To judge that, when the back bumper of the car in front passes a roadside sign, let's say then count one steamboat, two steamboat, three steamboat, and your front bumper should just be passing the same sign. Physics say this self-adjusts and works at any speed. The faster you go, the further apart the cars will be. Alex says, Londoners seem to drive 10 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. If they fail to recognize it's a 50 and not a 60, like Oxford between Highbury and Cherry Hill, then they are doing 70 and a 50. Jackrabbit off a start, drive faster than the limit, too close to the car in front, roll through stops, and you don't allow for people to safely merge into traffic, pull out of side streets, parking lots, etc. With improper spacing, when someone puts on the brakes in bumper-to-bumper traffic, the traffic actually stops a few kilometers back. That's where you get the caterpillar stop and go jams during rush hours and alex finishes by saying people don't plan then they need to speed to get to where they're going they throw the system off traffic slows they get frustrated aggressive run yellow lights not allowing turning cars to clear intersections take shortcuts and then accidents happen if we follow the rules maybe we make the system work i'm willing to give it a try how about you We're out of time on London Live. Matt Trevithick is next with news. London Live is brought to you by Courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. Tomorrow, the Peter Ng story that you can hear on Around the OHL and a whole lot more as we reach Friday on London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL.